You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast. Let's talk about. Hey people, how you doing? Nice to see you, figuratively speaking. Right, okay, I've got to say, welcome to Sports Therapy Association uh, podcast. We'll get that first of all, so you know where you are and what you're listening to. It's a video cast, okay? We do it live, just in case you're joining us for the first time. And uh, tonight, because it's the start of a massive topic, um, the subject of sleep, then uh, we're going out live, not just to the Sports Therapy Association YouTube channel, but also to the My Run Chat Live um, Facebook page as well, because it's a topic which is going to be basically be of interest to everybody, whether you're a runner or not, whether you're a sports therapist, personal trainer, um, whether you're just a, if you're a human being. And beyond, this will be of interest to you. Anybody who can understand it, um, I'm going to say apologise now. Um, I have got COVID, um, and I am a bit foggy. Um, I had that tasting today, just earlier on. I tweeted about it. Crazy. Um, I had some mayo and some and some mustard, and honestly, I've never felt so repulsed in my life by anything. And I've smelt some, tasted some pretty repulsive stuff. I've travelled. I'm a learned man. Really, every cell in my body sort of, and I was like, "Geez, that's strange." And no one else in the family obviously reacted. And yeah, just those two things at the moment. But hey, if that's all not going to suffer, then I've got nothing to worry about at all, apart from just being a bit, even a little bit more vague than normal. So bear with me if you can. Um, if you are joining us live, then um, you're welcome to write comments. Um, and the joy of joining us live is when you do ask questions or write comments, then I can bring them up on the screen. Um, you can ask our guests uh, questions as well so you're welcome to do that whether you're in youtube whether you're from facebook maybe say where you are joining me from so i've got a little idea to give you an idea then here we go becky carroll as always is first in the room and becky says oh no get better soon my kids are off with it too hey there's so many people with it now unfortunately touch wood as far as i know it's kind of the week i've definitely got the, the weakest variant i'm sure because i know a lot of people are far worse off than me and there's people still suffering long-term consequences of the original one, which is horrific um so yeah i'm really not moaning about it it's not as bad as man flu so that puts it kind of into into state so thanks becky for joining us and being in here leslie is here as well leslie campbell get well soon matt so nice this is such not a sample population of normal people because you're all kind of being really empathetic with me and saying get well soon um so i appreciate it thanks so much so I'm blabbing on already. Yes, the Sports Therapy Association podcast. And every month we take a focus point. Um, as I've said already, um, it's going to be Sleep Awareness Month this month of April. And I'm really excited about it in selfish ways because I've struggled with sleep all my life since a baby. And so it's something which really affects me personally. Again, not as much as a lot of other people, but I'm with it. I get it. I'm different. Um, and, and so I can I can um, definitely sympathize and, and understand everything I read about it. Um, and because it's such a big topic and I'm so flattered and honored and happy about the guests who I've got coming up across the course of the four episodes in April, um, culminating in uh, on the last Tuesday of April with Dr. Amy Bender, who was a guest before and how kind of it all kind of came to fruition. Um, the director of um, sleep, clinical sleep in uh, at Cerebra. And uh, Dr. Amy is going to come back and interpret the data, which uh, came from 32 nights of me hooked up to the Cerebra in-home polysomnogram. I say that word so cool now, polysomnogram. It's nothing at all. Day day one of 30, I was polynomna, polynomna, polysomnogram. No, now it's just polysomnogram. I'm there. So, yeah, it's been really exciting. Um, not hopefully just not for me getting my results, but just giving an indication of what can happen now thanks to the science 
sleep research hasn't revealed anything, but we're so much closer now to understanding about sleep quality um, and what maybe the different stages in sleep are doing, which is what we're going to talk tonight in a fantastic intro um, with Jesse Cook, who is joining us um, to take hold of the reins um, in the front seat and basically try and trim everything he knows about sleep into an hour. Easy. Um, before I do that, I must thank, first of all, before I forget, it is a new month, but last month, um, was the final part um, of the CPD focus, and that was with the wonderful Jack March, um, who came in and told us about all the masqueraders to do with rheumatology. Fantastic episode, so important, really relevant for therapists to play that part again in proper grown-up healthcare, as opposed to just rubbing people to make them feel better, which is nice, it's got a place, but if you really want to help people in pain and injury and be respected by kind of health uh, practitioners then you need to start recognizing things out of your scope and referring people on and you know what it's going to apply to sleep as well the same as it applies to pelvic health um, and all these other kind of areas where we as the greeter of the person in pain often because they want to lie down for an hour and get away and just have someone reduce pain like we know we can through touch we got to ask these questions and say hey you know what from what you told me you need to go and see so and so and it's just the business model for the future if you want to continue as a soft tissue therapist. I promise you, believe me, I know, I don't, but that's my, that's what I think anyway. So yeah, thanks so much to Jack March for joining us. And also it was a really special week for Jack March as well, because I don't know how many of you um, uh, watched Jack Chu, the creator of the Physio Matters podcast, um, broadcast his final episode of nine years of the Physio Matters podcast. It's very emotional, bless him. I put a video out there um, because I was watching it and recorded it and he was so choked up doing his last, you're listening to the, in fact, it wasn't in a Southern accent, it was in a Manc accent, which I won't try, but it's beautiful. Uh, nine years, I mean, the nine years of Physiomatics podcast has been nine years of me developing as a clinician um, and, and knowing what I know. And it's gone hand in hand with when I first met uh, Jack, who was gracious enough to admit that when I kind of tweeted what he put about Physio Matters podcast. He was like, wow, this guy's got 4,000 Twitter followers back 10 years ago. And I was like, really? You know, look fast forward 10 years and now I've got maybe just about 8,000 and he's on something like 17,000. So there's the business side of stuff as well, which I didn't quite, I wasn't quite born with. Um, but anyway, so yeah, um, if you haven't caught up with it, I'm sure um, episodes will be everywhere. over 50 guests, 24 hours of podcast. I must admit, I'd love to do that and I probably will before I die. But hats off to Jack. It was really emotional. And for Jack March for looking after it all. It was really cool um right i think that's all the housekeeping i need so yeah sleep awareness month on the sports therapy association podcast so it's exciting citing even i'm just going to go over here so i can see there we're going to start off today with jesse cook who like i say is going to come in and introduce us to sleep the silent epidemic when we're talking all about that um and then maybe we'll be joined as well today um depending on whether um she mentions going she's got a few other commitments going on <coughs> excuse me but next week's guest dr olivia walsh um may be joining us but she'll be with us definitely next week talking about sleep trackers which is a massive thing i'm sure a lot of you or your clients are using at the moment to track your sleep quality or quantity how well does that work um so it's something uh, which will be really important and then uh the third week we've got the pleasure of um, being joined by Dr. Jonathan Charest as well, um, who's going to talk about specifically speaking sleep injury and performance, which will be really relevant, obviously, for those of you who do work with people um, who come to you with either injury or pain or performance issues, and also runners who join me for Run Chat Live. You know, it's not just 
jargon tonight for therapists it's jargon for humans okay that's what the uh, goal is and then like i say in part four final week of april will be with dr amy m bender who's going to be looking at in-home polysomnogram and how technology is advanced and how everything comes together now and we can help our clients and refer them to the right people that's the plan stan so with that in mind what i'm going to do is get rid of that um get comfortable Try not to. Last week, which is the nightmare, everyone quiet so writing stuff down while Jack was talking. This is recorded, guys. You haven't got to take notes. I know what you like, Glens and Claire's and Leslie's. You haven't got to write stuff down. Okay, it's not a lecture happening once. Relax, sit back. You know, just enjoy what we have to say, especially what Jesse has to say, um, who I'm going to bring up right now. <laughs> Oh, I am well. Uh, great to be here, Matt. Great to uh, talk with you digitally. Um, I was ready to be a listener with that intro. It was great. <laughs> I feel a bit guilty, but you know what? I love my guests so much, including you, and I'll give you the same thing next week. I so appreciate you guys giving up your time, and it takes 10 minutes just to you know thank you and remind people what it's all about. So thank you for joining me. No, absolutely. And uh, to all those out there, thanks for finding time to uh, um, budget this into your lives, uh, wherever you may be. And uh, yeah, major shout out to Matt for the resiliency, for shouldering through his current illness to still put this on. Uh, I'm I'm elated to be here today to talk all things sleep. I am extremely passionate about it. And I'm so happy that you're using your platform uh, to draw uh, attention to this critically important, but sometimes unfortunately overlooked uh, behavior. Excellent. Brilliant. Right then. So to start off, I guess um, the lovely thing is I'm pretty sure no one in the room at the moment knows you. Probably they've started following you, hopefully, if they're wise people, because I know whoever I follow, they should be following. But so tell us a little bit about yourself, Jesse, and how you got into being this passionate about sleep. Yeah, definitely. So I'm six feet tall. I'm just kidding. Uh, so I originally uh, grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, and I went to school at the University of Arizona for my undergraduate school here in the U.S. And when I was in my junior year, I was trying to really prioritize having the important things in life, uh, a Tuesday and Thursday only class schedule. Uh, and a class sleep and sleep disorders was being taught by Dr. Richard Bootson, who I didn't know at the time but later found out is a pioneer of a behavioral treatment for insomnia. And being the hippie undergrad that I was that time, I was like, dreams, those are cool. Subconscious, I like that. I'm going to take this class. And truth be told, my mind was blown. Uh, Dr. Bootson, this is back in 2011, opened up my eyes to this vast world of sleep and the implications that has on just about everything from biological functioning at a cellular level, all the way up to cognitive ability, psychological uh, stability, uh, physical performance and recovery. Basically, there is no biological process that is unaffected by sleep. And, you know, it started getting me thinking, Matt, sleep is one of those things where everybody does it, similar to breathing, but nobody teaches you how to do it. They basically say, you know, you're supposed to get about eight hours, go behind this door, close the door and come out eight hours later and you feel refreshed. Simple enough. Well, as you're aware and as I'm aware and I'm sure everyone out there is, it's a little bit more complicated than that. So I joined, uh, that kind of propelled me to join Dr. Richard Bootson's Sleep Research Laboratory in 2012. Spent the year there as an undergraduate 
uh, research assistant, getting my feet wet with sleep methodology, um, assisting on some studies with sleep and divorce, um, sleep and meditation, things like that, uh, getting my foundational skill set for polysomnography. Uh, Matt, you, you killed it with a small polysomnogram. It's a tough word. Uh, EEG, electroencephalography, generally gets me. I think that took me about four years to nail that one. Um, but I, I ended up transitioning in 2013 to join uh, Dr. David Plant's laboratory in Madison, Wisconsin. And David Plant is a um, board certified or a certified licensed psychiatrist uh, board certified in sleep medicine. And he's now the medical director of Wisconsin Sleep here. So I got kind of this blurred uh, training lens into a psychologist perspective and also a psychiatrist perspective on sleep. And that's kind of where I find myself is kind of in between there. And I spent the next four years working in David's lab and developed uh, some research programs related to excessive daytime sleepiness and disorders of excessive daytime sleepiness, such as uh, narcolepsy and idiopathic hypersomnia, a word that is not as common as a word like insomnia. Uh, and Olivia, my colleague, who's just a wealth of knowledge and so um, vibrant, she'll be on next week to talk sleep trackers, but I've also published a lot on wearable sleep tracking technology, their shortcomings, their abilities, how to use them uh, clinically um, in the research domain and also recreationally. Uh, so I'm happy to talk more about that today if people have specific questions there as I just unfortunately won't be available next week. Uh, but I basically become sleep assessed, obsessed. And currently I'm uh, in my fifth year of my clinical psychology PhD program at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And uh, hopefully one day I'll finish that program up. Um, and I aspire to be a licensed clinical psychologist with a specialty in behavioral sleep medicine and also keep my kind of research um, programs alive as well along that way. And recently I've established more of a sleep, uh, we'll talk about the word circadian uh, a little bit later too in the context of sleep, but sleep circadian and athletic performance kind of research program growing here, which I know probably has some translation to today's um, content. And uh, yeah, overall, I've just, I've drank the Kool-Aid, Matt, is all I got to say. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm considering myself a training clinician. I've spent the last two years at the Madison uh, Veterans Affair training with veterans and helping sleep related to insomnia, CPAP use, nightmare disorder, um, hypersomnias, circadian rhythm sleep-wake disorders. And um, I just love the field. I think we do have some major issues in our society that make it really complicated to have sleep health. I don't think it's necessarily an individual issue, um, but I'm just happy to be here today to hopefully instill some knowledge, provide some some foundational knowledge about sleep, its import, the current problems in society, and anything people may have questions about. Fantastic. Thank you so much. So it's it's it's. I love, I've put it up here as a people listening to the podcast, you can't see what's going on the screen, but at the bottom I've got like the title here, Sleep the Silent Epidemic. And you know what? I'm only, I've only finally reached the age now where I can actually use clickbait because I hate it. I hate advertising. I love kind of uh, Bill Hicks, was it? He said, anybody here in advertising or marketing? Kill yourselves. I love that kind of thing because I really despise, I just, you need to do it, but I don't like it. But when it comes to sleep the silent epidemic i decided to use it because although it does sound like clickbait so it does serve the purpose and you have to do that to get people's attention fair enough especially with social media is it how close is it to the truth and why is it being used so much now i've, I've just stole it from somewhere else why are we regarding sleep as a silent epidemic yeah and uh i think it is a very 
um, commercially attractive title. You know, we definitely have some issues in society today about media trying to find a clickbaity title to just attract an audience. But I don't think this one is unsubstantiated. Um, I personally like to use the term, we have more of a sleep health crisis, a sleep health, I'm going to avoid the word pandemic now, but we used to use that word prior to our actual pandemic. Uh, but I think it's a silent epidemic because nobody's really like, we, we're kind of aware of it, but we're not really talking about it. It's not the forefront of change right now at the societal level. Because so many things would have to change for people to be able to have or for population-wide sleep health. And it is a sleep health crisis. It is truly a major public health issue in that it's been reported and estimated that upwards of 35 to 40% of the population at any given time is reporting insufficient sleep duration based on national recommendations. So generally speaking, for young to middle to older age adults, generally somewhere between seven to nine hours of total sleep time per night. I'm going to emphasize the word total sleep time. When we do these epidemiological studies trying to assess the prevalence, the commonality of insufficient sleep across society, we often use a cutoff of six hours or less. So even below the recommended level there, we're not getting to seven to nine. And so that's really concerning that you know, 35% are reporting habitual sleep less than six hours a night or equal to six hours a night. And to me, the scope of that problem, just insufficient sleep duration, is probably underestimated because I want to go back to the word total sleep time. These epidemiological studies are often leveraging data collected from a retrospective sleep questionnaire. So if I asked Matt, Matt, over the last month, how much sleep uh, would you, would you say you're averaging on a nightly basis? The average layperson society, from my perspective, is probably reporting the amount of time that they're in bed, that sleep opportunity window. And that is certainly not total sleep time because we absolutely know for certain that it's going to take time to fall asleep. We know that waking up in the middle of the night is normal. So we're going to have some middle of the night awakenings. And we certainly know that in persons who experience more fragmented or disordered sleep, uh, there's going to be a lot more wake during the sleep period too. So when someone says that they're sleeping six hours a night, I'm not entirely certain that's not five hours a night when we do a, a retrospective kind of sleep questionnaire assessment. And that's just one component of sleep health. And so these aren't necessarily all sleep problems. Some of them are consequences, but generally in any given time, about 35 to 50% of society report poor sleep quality. 33 to 35% are often experiencing excessive daytime sleepiness, which is really scary when you start thinking about how many people operate vehicles, fly planes, operate subways, trains, whatever it may be, under chronic insufficient sleep or some untreated sleep disorder that's causing excessive daytime sleepiness. And then along that line, an alarming prevalence of non-restorative sleep complaints and just general sleep disturbances, uh, typically estimated somewhere around 25 to 30% across the population. So the commonality and the implications of poor sleep, whether it be at the acute level, day-to-day, increasing car accidents, um, surgical procedure failure due to your surgeon being underslept, all these types of consequences of sleep problems at the acute level, and then also chronic when we start talking about 
uh, risk for neurodegeneration, uh, risk for cardiovascular disease, uh, risk for metabolic disorders, all sorts of things that skyrocket with poor sleep health. Those two, uh, the consequence and the commonality have uh, contributed to this whole sleep health crisis or the silent epidemic that we're experiencing. And it's a major problem, Matt, because society's not changing. And some of the things that are contributing to this issue, whether it be social media, technology, artificial light, stress, work demands, all sorts of things like that are still here. So the prevalence, meaning the, the um, proportion across the population and the incidence so the rate of change over time across the population are going up for all of these sleep problems and sleep disorders. So that's why we have a major problem here. And um, yes, maybe silent epidemic is a bit of a clickbaity title, but from my perspective, it at least does its service to draw attention to a major problem um, globally uh, right now, which is poor sleep health. Yeah, you quoted some, some fantastic examples there of when, when we stop and think, oh, yeah, imagine how many accidents are caused by people falling asleep at the kind of this, the wheel of a car or something. Or when we get tangible moments, there was a fantastic, I was trying to look it up now, I'm sure I wrote it down. There was a really cool um, <clears throat> BBC series over here in the UK. I'm not sure if it went um, outside of the, of the UK, which was based on the memoirs of a comedian who's also a, a GP, a doctor. I think it was a doctor might have been a surgeon i think it's a gp but he was involved in the nhs and it was to turn, turned into a series and it was showing based giving an inside look from someone who knows of how sleep deprived so many of the surgeons um and the doctors and the nurses are and how all of them are just doing double shifts and how they're making these decisions i mean the series was kind of comedy as well if you're listening in the um to the live show i think it's coming on this is going to hurt or something it's called this is going to hurt maybe but there were certain scenes where he's he was in, he was involved particularly <clears throat> in the maternity suite and stuff, and he was making decisions whether are we going to go cesarean or not, and there was like tragedy in it because he was losing sleep and he was just hallucinating and all of this stuff. So when people watch that, it's a light an insight into how dangerous lack of sleep is. But I think also it's just it's so heavily ingrained, isn't it, that if you can get some sleep, it's kind of a benefit. But, you know, that's the icing on the cake. The most important thing is get your stuff done, you know, get your work done. And if you can get maybe up to eight hours and that's lovely. But if you can't, we can catch it up, you know, at weekend. We now know, and you've kind of alluded to that, that it's not as simple as that. Once you start getting regular under six hours, then you're going to fall into some pretty nasty systemic diseases and increase the risk of that. How do we break that? Because... The audience here are mainly soft tissue therapists. And the reason I'm doing this is because I want them to be able to start feeling the need to look out for and educate their clients who are coming in in pain, which again is gonna be very much linked to lack of sleep. But first of all, the therapists themselves and the people watching this need to start changing the chip and realizing, geez, sleep is really important and I can't rob from sleep to do everything else. I've got to get sleep down and then base everything on top of that. How do we start doing that? That's a million dollar question, Matt. Uh, and I applaud all those that are uh, tuning in today for their interest here because there is that bi-directional relationship between uh, pain and sleep where, you know, pain problems are likely to uh, unearth or exacerbate sleep problems and poor sleep is going to degrade any sort of recovery 
uh, for an illness or even leave us more susceptible to injury in the first place. Uh, so I think at the surface level is just education. First of all, is showing people the data out there that these things really matter, that, you know, professional athletes are at a X amount of increased risk, if you will, uh, for a traumatic brain injury or a concussion due to reporting these types of sleep characteristics. But generally speaking, I think, how do we change with a, at the patient level when we're talking to an individual? For me, this is always a big issue. And I always want to clarify that I'm a training clinician. You know, I'm not licensed yet. And I, I have to be very careful with that. But when I'm working with somebody, I think it's always critically important to find their why, right? You have to find that motivational reason for change because sleep, it requires prioritization. Good sleep is not something that just occurs because I budgeted 30 minutes for a wind down period and I, you know, was able to transition into and, and block off a seven hour period of, of sleep window, which is still insufficient. A good night's sleep starts when you wake up in the morning. That's what I tell people. And so your actions and behaviors, your thoughts as well across the day are going to principally contribute to your ability to fall asleep, stay asleep and your sleep quality at night. So that requires a lot of investment. And so to be that invested with anything, to make those types of changes, to prioritize sleep at the need it's necessary for healthy sleep requires having a very meaningful why. And so I think that is kind of the big impetus for change or how you can get an individual to change is figuring out what is going to unlock their motivation for changing sleep. And it can be, you know, weight loss. It can be quicker recovery. It can be lower risk for injury at kind of this type of um, domain. Uh, it could be better emotional regulation so that you don't uh, have arguments with your partner or your children. It could be the ability to perform more acutely um, mentally. And whatever it may be, it's about finding the why for that individual that's going to make them turn off their electronics 90 minutes before bed and take a warm shower and drink tea while they stretch or journal or deep breathe, use their diaphragm, uh, meditate, whatever it may be that allows them to drift into the state of sleep rather than find themselves situated in front of the news, situated in front of Netflix and leave themselves vulnerable to the deleterious effects of this artificial light and the emotional content that is being um, thrust in front of their face and very uh, challenging to escape. Uh, so it, it really takes a lot of power and strength these days to prioritize healthy sleep. And so I think that ultimately begins with the why. Um, that's, I think, where we do it at the individual level. The population level is much more challenging, right? Uh, and I don't know how much time we want to spend on that with this situation, but I do think that there needs to be more uh, conscious awareness to not just the deleterious effects of poor sleep across society, but showcasing the benefits of healthy sleep. That I think will lead to legislation change that may narrow the workday or lead to more flexibility there where people can actually prioritize the things that go into healthy sleep, such as rest, but also physical activity, um, stress reduction practices, as well as maybe some other alterations to our day-to-day -day lives when it comes to school start times, the the nature of the school day in general that are contributing to the poor sleep health across the population. Cause I think we try and scare with like 
you know, if you sleep for less than six hours, more days than not, your risk for diabetes is increased by 290%. And yeah, that's terrifying. But I haven't found that much success even at the individual level, but certainly not the population level with that type of approach. I think if we come with the, hey, our workforce productivity increases 300 and X percent when we're well slept, that may lead the people who are responsible for making these changes to have more of a desire to make these changes. Um, and I think that's where we can make the big changes at the population level. But at the individual level, I think it starts, it's the same with any other big behavioral change, which is what's your why? Excellent. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's what you say is so true. You only got to look at like smoking packets with pictures of what smoking can do to you and people will still smoke. So the shock factor of, of this is going to, this could happen to you. It doesn't really work, does it? So I love that idea of showing, revealing the benefits, which are all around us of having good sleep. Because it's like everything we know. It's inherently the answers are inside us. We just need to somehow plant the seed so that people go, oh yeah, that makes total sense. We all know we should what we should be doing because we're humans. And as we'll probably mention later on, how we should be sleeping is in there. We just got to stop denying it by all the external things which kind of get in the way. But there's some excellent questions coming in here. Now look, what I'm going to have to do is I'm going to, Avoid your questions for 10 minutes because some of the answers to these questions without giving away any spoilers, we're going to need to just let Jesse for a second, maybe for 10, not for a second, that'd be too short, for 10 minutes. And this is like, I know a huge challenge, really tricky, but go through the basics of, you've already mentioned, for example, circadian rhythms. I want you to mention chronotypes. Um, and I want you to go through very basic language, the different stages of sleep. And if you can, what we think maybe happens within those stages. Yeah, in 10, ten seconds, mate. There you go. In 10 minutes. Um, here's my, here's yeah, here you go. my, 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 uh, blitz version of sleep. Uh, mm. no, uh, yeah, no, I, I think, uh, 10 minutes to be sufficient to give kind of a 10,000 foot view of why sleep's important, mm. uh, from an evolutionary perspective, kind of the foundations of sleep health, how we measure sleep, what we're looking for, what those things really mean. And then kind of an introduction to the processes that regulate sleep, which kind of bring in the circadian rhythm and the chronotype components of this as well. So I think I'll, I'll do my best. But well, I think it's we hard, can do this mate, in... <laughs> but if anyone can do it, you can. <sighs> Thanks. I appreciate the support. <laughs> and truthfully, as Matt said, I just want to echo that sentiment. These questions look great. And there's a couple that I've already mm. wanted to ask already. And Becky, you didn't have to steal it. You can have it. It's a gift. Um, so anyways, um, more or less, I always like to think about a function, a behavior from an evolutionary lens to determine whether it's important, necessary, why did it even happen? And from a natural selection standpoint, sleep doesn't make any sense to me at all. We're not searching for a mate. We're not looking for food. And we're vulnerable to predation. And you may, th you may be there thinking to yourself, okay, well, maybe it's about not having to look for food because we're not burning as much energy and restoration. And spot on, there's definitely, those things are linked to the function of sleep, which we, it's not fully known at this point, but they're well-established as reasons why this may have presented in the evolutionary pipeline. But the question still remains of why eight hours? Why that much? Because no, it's not eight hours for everybody, but that's just, we'll just say a kind of general rule of thumb. And that seems like a lot of time to be slightly offline because we're not fully offline. We're still ambiently picking up our environment and our brains never shut off, but we're definitely disconnected 
from our truly conscious state of navigating the world, which leaves us very vulnerable to predation, like a lion eating us, right? So from that perspective, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Yet, when you think about that and the fact that every animal has some form of sleep-like state, every animal, it's universal. And I'll say sleep-like state because it varies. You know, what uh, sleep looks like in a fly looks a lot different than what sleep looks like in a human. But everyone's got some sort of... um, sleep-like state. And for humans, uh, and well, for mammals, we've developed kind of two main categories of sleep. And one is called non-rapid eye movement sleep, and the other is rapid eye movement sleep. Um, And within humans, we then further distinguish non-rapid eye movement sleep into three stages. Non-rapid eye movement sleep one, two, and three. Us sleep people, we're, we're not too complicated. Uh, we try and keep it very simple. But each of these things are thought to be distinct components of sleep. And the reality is they're still a little arbitrary. But when we put somebody under a polysomnogram, uh, similar to what Matt's been going through with the tools that Amy's provided, we can assess a multitude of physiological signals. That's the poly component of polysomnogram. Poly, many somnosleep, graph measurements, many sleep measurements. And some of that includes your heart rate. Some of that includes your breathing. Some of that includes your leg movement, muscle tonus throughout the body. And some of it's your brain activity. And what's really important about the brain activity is that's generally how we break down the different stages of sleep. So right now, all of us are experiencing a stage of sleep, if you will, just to maybe a slightly different degree, and that's called wake. And when we're in a wake state, we often have a faster bit of activity. It's it's a frequency that sometimes is more in the alpha range, which I won't go into too much detail, and sometimes more in the beta range, a little bit faster. But as we start to drift into sleep and drift into these different stages, that brain activity starts to slow down. And we start to see big changes in the electrical signal. And all that really maps onto is that there's different firing rates of the neurons that are in our brain. So more or less, we've categorized brain changes into different stages of sleep. Now, there's definitely a debate in the field of whether these stages are real valid constructs. But for right now, we're just going to assume that there are five stages of sleep. There's wake, non-REM one, non-REM two, non-REM three, and REM. And we ebb and flow throughout the stages throughout a night of sleep, something called sleep architecture. And abnormalities in sleep architecture, such as uh, a delayed amount of time to fall asleep, sleep initiation issues, or waking up too frequently throughout the night, or going into REM sleep too early, or not having enough of non-REM 3, are often distinguishing features of disorders and can help explain impairments that our people are having with their sleep. And so that's how we kind of measure sleep in laboratory. But when we do that outside a laboratory, we often lose that resolution. Unless, you know, you get some fancy equipment uh, like Matt has where we have the home uh, polysomnography machines. But I saw a good question in there about wearable trackers. And there's no EEG, brain activity signal, in most of those wearable trackers, right? There are some commercial devices like the Dream Headband that measures your EEG, but that lacks some other things. So the measurement changes when we leave the laboratory. We're still able to categorize sleep 
reliably based on just maybe your movement and your heart rate, which I actually believe you should save those questions for Olivia because her math brain is so good that she can answer those questions better than I can of, of why we can do that. Uh, but that's how we take our in-lab measurement and bring it out and try and understand how sleep's operating in the natural world, in your natural environment, because it's kind of unfortunate that we have to bring you into an artificial environment for a single night to get the depth of measurement we want. So that's kind of the how we measure sleep and what sleep is. As far as sleep health, I just want to say duration is one component, right? Healthy sleep duration is a component of sleep health but it's not the only component. And I think the others often get overlooked. I like to describe sleep health through four different pillars. Duration, continuity, meaning are you sleeping continuously throughout your night or are you fragmented because you're waking up a couple times or as I saw, I think from Gary in there, potentially having some early morning awakenings that make it difficult to get back to sleep. Then there's the consistency of your sleep, and this is critical, and I think there was a Twitter question today that already talked about social jet lag tendencies or the need to recover sleep on the weekend, where our schedules change quite a bit. And so the consistency element's important, which we'll talk about why in a second with our circadian rhythm in particular, uh, but also the depth and quality of your sleep. And so there's four different, in my eyes, main domains of sleep health, and I just think the conversation often begins and ends with duration but there's much more than that. Now, why do we sleep or how do we sleep? I still think it's a bit elementary, but the best concept we have for describing how one regulates sleep and wake is called the two process model of sleep and wake regulation. Why? Because there's two biological processes that are involved there. One of which is called the homeostatic process. And you could think of this as your internal sleep need. It's kind of like a hunger cue. And I think it's very easy to conceptualize this one because the longer you stay awake, the higher your sleep need is. And that keeps increasing over time. So that's often when we're trying to treat sleep disorders at night, like insomnia, we often have people avoid daytime napping because that decreases their sleep need when they want to go to sleep at night, which can manifest as sleep initiation or sleep maintenance problems. And then lastly, Uh, There's the circadian rhythm, which you can see as process C. So there's process S, the homeostatic sleep need, and process C, which is our circadian component. And this is something that's increased in intention over the last, I'd say, 10, 15 years or so. And basically, the circadian rhythm is one's internal, innate, endogenous, biological clock that regulates just about every component of physiology. And it's called circadian because it lasts about a day. It's on average about 24.18 hours. So about a day. And in Latin, circa means about or around. And diaz means day. So circadian, about a day. And what that does is regulate when key hormones, such as cortisol, a wake-promoting hormone, and melatonin, a sleep-promoting hormone, hormone, turn on and off. And myriads of other sleep-related physiology and wake-related physiology. And truthfully, we all kind of vary in our circadian rhythm. There are some people who have longer circadian rhythms than 24.18 hours and actually causes problems for them in society because their sleep schedule keeps shifting later and later. And it's a non-24-hour sleep-wake circadian rhythm disorder. And 
uh, in turn, uh, so basically the circadian rhythm plays a key role here. And I'm trying to look at the questions at the same time. This is a, a multitasking nightmare. <laughs> really well. I know. We've got 30 seconds left for 10 minutes. Gotcha. Uh, so we all kind of differ. Me, myself, I've always been morning tendency. So I call that a circadian preference. So a circadian preference is how I choose to align my day. But I do believe that probably maps onto my chronotype, which is the biology underlying the circadian rhythm. And so we often get kind of convoluted there. Is it somebody's chronotype or is it their circadian preference? Chronotype is often measured in laboratory by assessing when somebody's melatonin levels increase in dim light. But we often don't do that outside a laboratory. So we use proxies, which provide an estimation of somebody's chronotype. But I'm often hard pressed to believe that every person that presents as an eveningness preference has an eveningness chronotype. And so I think when we think about this clinically too, not to get too lost in the weeds, but it's important to understand whether somebody's preference doesn't actually align with their biology. And maybe that's causing the problems. We can come better management there. But to sum it up, the circadian rhythm uh, varies between humans, but it is a universal system that helps organize and regulate our sleep and wake. And it plays a critical role. And when our sleep need is high and our circadian rhythm is in a sleep-like state, that sleep gate right there is when we want to sleep. And we often have very little difficulties falling asleep or staying asleep. And we often get great quality sleep when those two are aligned. When one is out of balance or both are desynchronized, we often have some major problems. And that becomes the focus of intervention. Fantastic. Bravo, mate. Very good. That was like 12 minutes and you managed to fit it all in there. Um, there's excellent, really, really well put. Um, and and I'm a sucker for like an American accent when it comes to explaining anything. Um, it just sounds so passionate and you use much longer words than we do in England. It's really cool. So um, I needed that because I think what we're going to do now shortly, I'm just going to we're going to bring up Olivia Walsh, who's um, um, downstairs in the lobby waiting patiently. Um, but um, then we're going to have a look at some of the questions um, which you've been asking, because I think to answer some of these questions, Jesse or Olivia might be saying, oh, well, your circadium or your chronotype or the REM stage or the NREM stage or stage two or three, whatever it's going to be, might now you know that, um, then it'll make it easier probably with some of these questions. And I've also got some questions on my phone, which I've been gathering during the day as well. So with that done thing, I think we'll now address some questions and there's loads coming. But first of all, uh, next week's guest has come really early now who I said she could come. So let's bring up Olivia, who's going to be talking about trackers next week. Hey, Olivia. Hey, I'm so excited to be here. Thanks so much. I'm good. How are you? You guys uh, well, know each other. Uh, a little bit, yeah, a little bit late. I was like, oh, Jesse, I'll join you. And then I was like, oh, got a conflict. Um, but I'm glad I can be here for, for this part, at least. Um, well, great to Jesse, meet you. Jesse, it was fun hearing your, your explanation. And Matt, great to meet you. How did he do? I had 12 minutes to basically go through the... <laughs> <laughs> you nailed it you did great we mentioned you we mentioned you a couple of times now because uh, obviously trackables have come up and we've kind of like built you up massively for next week saying oh we'll, we'll do that next week with olivia's here um but we, what we're going to do now is we're going to take some questions they've been firing through and now we've had a little bit of like i say a an intro to circadian rhythms and chronotypes and nrem and the stages of nrem and rem and how they differ and how we measure them with the brain waves and things then hopefully that'll all um make the questions easier to address so 
we kind of touched on it already and but especially as olivia is here now uh becky mentioned here we go uh fitbits or any type of other wearable trackable we're not picking on one particular brand here but yeah fitbits is a method of monitoring sleep or you're just like a journalist becky helpful or harmful look at that alliteration cornering them into a you know but anyway what do you think to that um olivia what do you reckon Oh, that's tricky. I mean, there is this this phenomenon that gets talked about at sleep conferences called orthosomnia, which is people are so stressed about their sleep tracking that it's it's making their sleep worse. And what my postdoc advisor always said is like, the way you know you've got a sleep problem is that you feel bad about your sleep. Like, just you don't feel good when you you wake up in the morning, and not because Fitbit gave you a fifty eight. Like, if you feel fine and Fitbit gave you a fifty eight. Fine matters more. And so I think it's very specific to the individual. I personally love Fitbits, but if you find that they're giving you real anxiety, then like absolutely lay off the wearable and lay on the pillow. I tried to end that in a snappy way. Very cool. <laughs> Jesse, you got some competition here. Right, what do you say, Jesse? I was, um, was going to say, do I, do I even have to follow up after that mic drop? <laughs> First of all, uh, so great to see you as always, Olivia. Thank you for, for bringing your vibrant personality and expertise onto the show and, and help me out here. Um, Olivia's spot on. You know, orthosomnia is a real thing. You know, some people are more susceptible to than others. We're not entirely certain who is most susceptible yet. Obviously, some clear patient characteristics and phenotypes stand out, those who are more prone to obsessive tendencies or anxiety may be more susceptible to the deleterious effects or the negative effects of wearables. And um, ultimately, Olivia's right. We should base our understanding of our sleep quality largely on our subjective experience, which can be hijacked by the output from these devices. There's actually science out there that's shown that sham feedback, so fake feedback, about poor sleep quality will lead people who objectively got good sleep quality to rate their sleep quality as poor. So we must know that these devices are getting better because I personally have a wearable. Uh, I enjoy wearables. Uh, I think they have utility, but they're still flawed in some ways. So it's understanding what to do with your tracker. And for me, I think it's a helpful tool of understanding kind of my consistency to my schedule. I think they do a good job with that. They're really solid at estimating sleep duration. I think that's their best characteristic at this point. But as far as basing your life and your anxiety and your worry on how long the reporting you fell asleep, um, how many times you woke up during the night, and your percentage of deep sleep or REM sleep, right now they're still very, very um, poor. Eh, I wouldn't say poor. They've improved, but they still have notable error there that can lead you uh, offline. So. I think generally they can be very helpful tools, especially, you know, when you get to Jonathan's discussion in, in week three about um, sleep and injury and performance as someone who might be vulnerable to a risk for a concussion per se, um, getting a lens in that information, but they can certainly be harmful as Olivia unpacked due to kind of the orthosomnia and, um, you know, over fixation on sleep. It's this delicate balance of prioritization without fixation and delicate is the right word. Excellent. Great answers. I'm glad you two agree on that. Um, I think Amy as well, Dr. Amy Bender said the same kind of thing. Great to start a conversation, but you've got to know the limits of it <clears throat> and listen to yourself. 
Uh, what did you say there, Olivia? What was it? Lay off the device and lay on your pillow, wasn't it? That's, that's brilliant. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Trademark Olivia. Very nice. Yeah. That's Do not cool. steal. <laughs> it's made me forget the one that Jesse came up with early on now. It's just gone. I haven't got the headspace now. But Jesse, it said something which was so profound as well, but it's just been pushed out by that. Sorry. It's, uh, it's I, I say doubtful. That was as good as it gets. So, <laughs> <laughs> so there you go, Becky. There, obviously, we'll be talking about trackables more next week. Um, but yeah, people listening on One Chat Live, don't let you know we've already talked so much anyone who's had conversations with me and consultations we've talked about reliance on fitbit and and all of the technology to calculate your cadence and your all the step stride rate and all this stuff and you're missing the low-hanging fruits because you're getting dazzled by the technology which is invented to make money which is a little bit cynical obviously there's a love in it as well to help people but it's made you know there to keep you looking at it and dependent on it and made storing it easy so but anyway we'll talk about that next week i hope that was useful becky um as an introduction to it um claire walker i'm going to do these in order so they're going to come out a little bit randomly and what we'll try and do where are we oh, 11 minutes um uh what we'll see shortish answers so we start off with any sleep advice during menopause yeah, I'll dive in real quick and, and see what I can do. Because truthfully, it's not an area of expertise, but I've, I've worked with a couple of people who have gone through this experience. And uh, my best advice is to really focus on just your global sleep health habits, you know, really having consistency, really avoiding alcohol use. I do know that the change in estrogen often can lead to sleep problems during this period. So it may even be necessary to have some sort of like estrogen replacement therapy that is sometimes recommended. But there unfortunately, Claire, isn't to my understanding, a lot of, you know, kind of very simple, universal, specific advice for this kind of handling sleep during menopause. So I think it's just gonna be really focusing on the other foundations of what leads to sleep health. Olivia, to add? Really just agree. And this is this is something that I could say at any point in time to any conversation uh, or question that comes up, but something that like in theory should really help is stopping thinking about dark at night as optional. So as much as possible, if you wake up in the middle of the night, don't turn on the lights. Don't especially turn on overhead lights. Like before we had artificial lighting, it wasn't optional. Night was night and that was it. And I think making it optional has made it so it's really easy to have sleep problems exacerbate themselves. You wake up, you turn on the lights, you disrupt your body's clock, you have more sleep problems. So just as much as you can, and I know it's boring to be in the dark if you wake up, <laughs> like just try and avoid things that matter to your circadian clock, like light exposure. It's interesting because, I mean, to start off, it's tricky because I've suffered from poor sleep. So I, by nature, know that if I wake up and my wife tries talking to me, expecting me to say anything, I'm just going to attack her because I'm like, by making me talk and making me think, and then I'm not going to get to sleep again. If there's a hint of light, if she leaves the door open at 6 or 5.30 in the morning, I will be awake and can't get to sleep again because that crack of light just stirred me. I need my darkness. So I'm really sensitive already to the needs to make sure I stay asleep, which kind of helps if I'm talking to people and trying to. But with all of these questions, I think if you look up 12 tips to improving your sleep quality, I think there's a particularly good 
which is the one that Matthew Walker talked about. Is it the the NH the N? Was it? I can't remember what the name of the organisation is now. National Health Institute or something. But if you look up twelve tips, there's so many things which I think people could improve, regardless of whether it's menopause or training for a marathon or whatever the situation is. There's going to be extra details, but when you look at things which people could do, like I love the one. Don't have a clock which is saying the time in your face every time you open an eye because you're just going to get anxious about it. Put a cover over it. The alarm will go off if you need an alarm when it's time to wake up. Why Why wake up and go, oh, it's two o'clock. Oh, it's half past two, you know. So that's just one of 12 tips which I think can help everybody. And, and they're not obvious because unless you read them, you know. What are some other tips? You mentioned already the dark. Um, you've mentioned, I think, um, a couple of the other ones. But what are some other ones which people could do quite easily to help improve their quality? What comes to mind? I would say uh, start thinking about your sleep when you wake up in the sense that actions you take early in the day affect your sleep 16 hours later. So, for instance, you really want to try and get light during the day. It's not just a matter of avoiding it at night. You want to get a ton of it during the day so that you're really sending the signal to your brain that day has happened. And so then when night rolls around, it's like, oh, day has happened. Night is here. Uh, you can uh, think of it almost as like like being on a swing and like trying to get a really big like amplitude going, like a really big swing. And the way you do that is somebody pushes you in one direction, and then they stay out of your way on the back swing when you're coming back. And getting light at night is kind of like sticking your arm out while somebody's swinging backwards and interrupting their their rhythm, interrupting their swing. And similarly, not getting enough light in the day is like having a really weak push. It's like, mm, here it is. And you're not going to get a really nice swing. But what that big amplitude helps is it helps you swing into sleep. So the light exposure you get during the day is going to help you sleep tonight. Very cool. And that's remind me actually what what um, Jesse said earlier on. Your good night sleep starts when you wake up. I think that was probably it. Oh, you already um, said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was in there, but no, it was good because you were just reminded me. So he's back there now. Um, yeah, light will show up again and again, hasn't it? As we talked about circadian rhythm and how the effect—not just light, temperature and stuff as well—but <coughs> excuse me, a massive player, isn't it, in helping your body naturally grow sleepy, wake up, stay awake, and that sort of stuff. Sorry, Jesse, I interrupted you. Were going to say something, I believe. No, you're good. And uh, Olivia hit the. The big thing to jump off with is to get that circadian rhythm regulated and off to a great start. We want uh, a ton of light exposure in the morning and sustained across our daytime hours, ideally natural. But if we can't because we're in a normal climate or whatever, circadian light boxes are a good replacement and recommended. Um, but even if it's cloudy, you're still getting sunlight if you go outside. I think physical activity in the in the morning is also critically important. Those two fall into uh, what we call zeitgeibers or clock and trainers because they help organize our circadian rhythm. So if you can get up and get active in the sunlight, you're doing a great job already. Um, as we move through the day, things will change a little bit. We really want to be mindful of our caffeine consumption in the afternoon. I think a simplified rule of cutting off at noon is a good place to start. And I even think if we went a little bit earlier of 10 or 11, it's a, not a bad idea either. We all vary in how we process and metabolize caffeine, but generally speaking, it's about six to 10 hours of half-life. So if you have that cup of coffee in the afternoon, you may still be able to fall asleep, but it may actually interfere with your depth of sleep. Uh, and it may be still circulating there and not allowing you to get the deeper stages. 
And then we also want to be really, really mindful of another term that's near and dear to Olivia's heart because it has the word circadian in it. Uh, the circadian dip. We're all vulnerable at about, you know, t- anywhere between 12 and 3 p.m., depending on our circadian rhythm, to having a little bit of a downtick, a lethargy. And a lot of people chalk that up to digestion after lunch, but that's kind of a misperception, a uh, faux pas, if you will. It's generally this just kind of dip in our circadian rhythm as it starts to transition from cortisol production ramping to plateauing to decreasing. And then the kind of seesaw effect of melatonin starting to increase in the afternoon to transition to our sleep phases. So be very careful around that period because that's when people are very vulnerable to eating a calf, uh, having a caffeinated drink, taking a prolonged nap, which could show up and interfere with our sleep quality at night and leave us more likely to perpetuate that behavior uh, or have like a high sugar candy bar that leads us into lethargy and crash. And maybe we don't do our physical activity or exercise. That's also key for sleep. And then the big ones too is avoiding uh, large meals before bed. We're starting to get a better understanding of how meal timing and the composition of meals has an effect on our sleep ability or quality. And really, 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 really budget enough time to wind down. We're not robots. We don't have an on and off switch. And basically, as Olivia said, you know, we start up with our plane ramping up and then we start to fly and we're at our this you know altitude throughout our day. And at some time we got to come down and we can't just drop out of the sky. So we really need to land our plane. And I make the analogy of, you know, putting your tray table up and your seat back up and getting everything ready to go for landing. And the more time you give yourself, the smoother that landing and transition is into sleep. Um, and the last thing I'll say is just if you have a propensity for worrying or your head hits that pillow and it's flooded with anxious thoughts, carve out a time much earlier in the day, maybe noon, one, two, to constructively worry, to think about the problems that might come into your head at night and address them ahead of time. Because hand up here, when my worrying happens when I'm in bed, that's not constructive. That's catastrophic. It's like, okay, I'm not going to finish this program. I'm never going to have a degree. I'm not going to have a job and I'm going to be homeless. And that's not going to be helpful for my sleep, nor is that realistic. So those are kind of like big picture things we can do across our day. Massive. So much information there. That's great. And there's so much we could talk about each of these individual points. And hopefully that's the idea why we're doing Sleep Awareness Month. Um, I know, again, from experience, the, I read it and I'm like, yeah, well, that's what I've done all my life because I know I have to do it. If you're anxious in bed, get out. Don't stay in the bed fretting because it just circles round. And that's what I call the carousel where suddenly, well, literally I'll get to a state where I'm actually feel like I'm having a bit of a panic attack and I'm breathing and I have to get to the bathroom and splash water in my face and kind of like, <gasps> because I've just stayed in bed for that. What feels like an hour just going, I'm not going to sleep. I'm not going to sleep. And I learned to a younger age, get up, move around, have something, a little snack or something. You know, don't let bed place become the enemy. It just winds you up. So you're going to condition yourself like a Pavlovian dog to view the bed as a place of wakefulness or frustration or anger and anxiety, which perpetuates sleep problems rather than viewing as a place of this warm, tranquil, calm, inviting place where we fall asleep and stay asleep. And so that's the other problem with staying in bed worrying. Yeah. yeah. Um, How are you guys for like 10 minutes more? You, I don't know what you're up to or. There's a lot of good questions. I'm okay. Oh, there's so much mate. I want to go. Through. I'm good. You mentioned the the the. the I had a couple of questions online earlier today when I kind of invited people. The napping thing. So you mentioned the kind of that little dip which people sometimes attribute to after lunch. That kind of times in with this idea of the natural biphasic nature which humans probably once had until modern industry came along, where we should be taking a nap 
when that dip naturally happens, but it mustn't be too long. Do you are you kind of in agreement with that, or do you think there's a danger of um, taking a nap and it, it not helping when it comes to nighttime sleeping? How do you know whether to take one or not? I think it's really complicated, uh, and I think it really depends on whether we're treating sleep. You know, if someone's got a focal sleep complaint and they're trying to improve their nocturnal sleep at night, and they work in a traditional you know, nine hour or eight hour shift job in this kind of modern society where the ability for kind of um, structured or scheduled rest or nap during the daytime is less viable, then trying to avoid daytime napping to improve your nocturnal sleep ability and quality so you can function across the whole day is critical. Yet, I'm not phobic to daytime napping. I, again, Matt, like to come at this from an evolutionary perspective and I align with you. I think we generally came from climates that were really, really hot during the middle of the day. And it probably makes a lot of sense that it wasn't productive for us to be out in those conditions. And so we probably took to safety and recovery, kind of that siesta, that circadian dip that occurs to maybe conserve energy and also not leaving ourselves vulnerable to prey out there that are not as uh, interfered with because of the heat. So I think it is a natural indicator of what life probably looked like, um, you know, in our evolutionary underpinnings. So I think there's a cultural component to this as well. So there's no universal answer here. Um, my father, who may or may not be listening, he's reached the age of retirement. And when you get to the age of retirement, you know, there is less structure to your days, less demands, less needs. And so when I'm working with a client who's at that stage, I'll inform them that I think it's best if we try and prioritize not napping for your sleep at night. But if it's not a problem for you to sleep one to two hours, then just know that that may interfere with your ability to fall asleep at a consistent time each night. And if you're not experiencing distress with that, that's okay to me. And we still want to accumulate somewhere between seven to nine hours of total sleep time across our 24-hour period. Olivia, take it away. I really don't have anything to add. <laughs> I mean, like... I'm like, sorry. Naps, do, do you go for it? Do you go? I mean, it's lovely to. So, I love it when an answer is depends on the individual. And to tell you the truth, when it comes to health of somebody, it's always going to depend on the person who's in front of you. But I've read like studies that have showed, and, and it's tricky, isn't it, with research, but studies have showed that as the tradition of siestas moved away from um, hotter countries like Spain and Greece, then, the, then they've kind of either correlation or causation seen an increase in the amount of cardiovascular age and cardiovascular disease and a decrease in the life expectancy of males. Is Do you think there is an argument for correlation there or is it just it's going with the sign of the times? Is it possible that we're better off actually if we can and healthy have that nap during the day or again, is it going to depend? I think it's totally believable. Like, yeah, because like, like that nap is counting towards your total sleep count. And mm. I think cutting it, it often isn't compensated for with more sleep at night. So like mm. well, with appropriate disclaimers about correlation <laughs> and causation, I think there's a story that you could believe as, as really plausible there. I think the exciting thing is, and again, thinking of people in the audience and listening to the podcast to our therapists and having people come. We've talked so much about the, the joy and it should be a joy of the jigsaw of looking the person in front of you and putting all the bits together and asking, again, asking more and more questions and setting a, uh, an ambulance where they're gonna open up and tell you things. This is where you can make recommendations. Like, for example, and this attains this question here, like Gary's talking about 
um uh how does he phrase it was a lovely way a man of a certain age so southern um a man of a certain age who's gonna have to get up during the night um that doesn't have to be something to catastrophize and worry about but it may mean that make sure other things are in place so you can get back to sleep again doesn't it everyone's going to have a reason to disturb the night whatever it is it's kids or prostrate sorry whatever man of a certain age um <laughs> there's going to be stuff going on isn't there so it's about making sure that everything else is as good as possible so you can just go back to sleep again i guess yeah yeah, yeah a very global perspective yeah. yeah and you have permission to not be perfect that's another thing about being human right is there is no such thing as perfect sleep health. We don't even really know truly like what is each element of sleep health yet from a quality quantity perspective, those types of things. So yeah, I think that's very fair and looking at the global, get the other ducks in order. And I, and I also wanted to draw attention to the kind of second half of Gary's comment there about the conditioning component of lifestyle and how that can influence <laughs> our kind of sleep issues or our sleep habits downstream. This goes back to something that is, um, Olivia is an expert on, and I kind of unpacked when it comes to the circadian rhythm, but we can develop kind of alterations in our rhythm from um, prolonged exposure to different kind of sleep-wake schedules. So if you're on a, say, a third shift lifestyle for a long period of time, I don't know what long is, Olivia, really, that's necessary to really leave a lasting mark on your circadian rhythm, but that can often dysregulate your circadian rhythm where it will take time with structured therapy and organization to then stabilize it and return it to the kind of traditional structure that you want. So if you're going from, say, a third shift to a traditional shift, you may have major difficulties doing that because that underlying biology has changed. So it makes so much sense, Gary, that your kind of longstanding exposure to that lifestyle probably shaped your biology, your chronotype, and also maybe your preference to be more aligned with that type of sleep-wake characteristic. Olivia, do you have something to add to that at all? I mostly just wanted to piggyback off your comment on timing, which is that I, I think you can't think of sleep as like a, a, a one-day thing. Like if you're trying to do a sleep intervention, you're trying to like recover from sleep debt, like that's multiple days or weeks. I, I'm running a trial right now where we're putting people on a circadian intervention to look at their fatigue and we see a difference, but it takes like two, three weeks for the control group and intervention group to really separate. And then it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And a lot of people I think burn out after like one or two nights of trying something and are like, it didn't fix my sleep. When, when the way to think about sleep, I think is not, uh, in, in, isolation. Think of it like walking. This is this is another analogy here. You're not thinking about walking step by step. You're thinking about it as like the rhythm. And you're not like, oh, I took three small steps. Better take a big step. Like if you're hyper-focused on your next step, you're not going to have a good walk. Like it's going to be this really arrhythmic pace that you have going. And it, you're probably also um, not going to enjoy the experience very much. Whereas if you instead think about sort of the rhythm of sleep, like the rhythm of walking. And okay, you might stumble sometimes, but then you get back on the, the horse and you're really focused on this regularity aspect and this rhythmic aspect. Um, I think you'll really start to see um, dividends be paid. Great advice. Um, there's, I think we'll wait until episode three. There were some questions from Angie, um, Jackson, who was a guest during the CBD month regarding 
teenagers and athletes and that's a whole interesting section which maybe we'll talk about with jonathan when it comes to the sports performance that saves me from having to get through four questions but to do with chronotype changing during our lifetime because it's kind of connected isn't it chronotype does move around as we get older which means the patients we see we get if we're aware of that as therapists then we can kind of generalize but kind of think right this person this stage of life this is probably going on whether it's teenage athlete or even very senior athlete in some form so i like this comment from um nikki though um because it kind of goes back to that light thing, which is all so important. Nikki Mansfield, I'll read it for those listening to the podcast. Nikki Mansfield says, if I cannot drop off to sleep, I have advice to get up and do something else till I'm tired again. How do I do this if I need to avoid switching on the light during the night? Sounds like a silly question, doesn't it? You know, and I hate this idea of Nikki stepping on some plug or something or because they're determined not to. But the, again, the light's so important, isn't it? When we say don't switch on a light, or try not to avoid bright lights in the evening. There's some lovely ways with mood lighting and different lights you can buy now. So what is some of the recommendations with regards to this question? What sort of light could you use or buy to allow you to move around without instigating that wake up process? Olivia. Yeah, it's a great question. And so, sorry, challenging. Oh, no. um, <laughs> I, I have, uh, commandeered our whole home my partner may not like this at this point uh she was phobic of these at first but we have night lights throughout our home this way i can go to the bathroom in the middle of the night and not have to turn on a main light and not have to worry about my safety so we want to just be mindful also ideally we don't turn on any lights but sometimes we really got to have something so we from a safety perspective so limiting the amount of light is really important uh, so I think don't be fearful of having night lights. I also had to grab this guy. This is one of my favorite tools. If I'm having a middle of the night awakening where I can't return to sleep and I got like these little lamps here so that I can read on a, you know, an actual book, whatever those are. Um, and, you know, I can move throughout my house that way um, without having it directly shined into my eyeballs where it's going to disrupt my circadian rhythm and send a wake signal. So I think there's some little novel devices commercially available these days that can help with that type of problem. And I think the other elephant in the room, and then I'll pass the mic to Olivia here, Nikki, is, you know, it's more of a modern issue of why are we craving electronic use right now? Can't we do other things such as reading, stretching, journaling, breathing, all sorts of things like that, um, that don't need to turn on the tablet or the TV. Um, but I will say, you know, I'm not immune to those behaviors as well. And I think just trying to reduce the likelihood of doing it I think that also begins with setting yourself up for success. When I'm working on stimulus control therapy with somebody, which is what you're describing here, I have them bring their journal, their book, all their stuff to that environment that they're going to go to. So they're not scrambling around. So they don't have to turn on a light to find things. So I think set yourself up for success, get your yoga mat out, whatever it may be, and turn a negative that is the sleep disruption, that is the sleep irritation, that is the sleep frustration into a positive. Go pet your animal that you've been neglecting because life is too fast, whatever it may be. Um, in our home, we call it visiting John's lair. That's our cat and he sleeps on the couch. Uh, so that's what we call our middle of the night awakening approach. But um, yeah, I just think, you know, try and explore um, less electronic based interventions. And if you have to really just try and set yourself up for success by limiting the exposure. Yeah, I mean, like uh, all of that and just reiterating that it's, it's an optimization problem. Do not hurt yourself as you like try and get somewhere out of bed because I told you to stay in the dark. Get enough light so you do not injure yourself. 
Uh, and Olivia, the person, not Olivia, the science is re- scientist is really fond of audio. Like I'll like, like squint at my screen for two seconds, start playing something, turn it off and then be in the dark again. And that can really help me if I'm out of bed. So I'm not associating bed with not being able to sleep, get back into the sleep mode while treating light, uh, sorry, treating dark as much as possible as not optional as something that like really is the rule of my house when the sun's down. Very cool. Very nice. Oh, I wish you had another hour. We don't. Um, so much there, but I think I managed um, to cover quite a lot of the questions, hopefully. And in all honesty, like other people I remember were talking about, please ask what to do if you're taking a medication, which um, is prone to waking you up, which again, kind of maybe it's looking at the other low hanging fruits and realizing, look, I'm in this situation where I have to take this medication. Um, unless you do contact your GP and see if there's an alternative, because sometimes that's an option, isn't it? But um, it's, yeah, realizing I'm going to wake up because of this or that. Let's just put everything else in place. And, you know, because no one's going to have a perfect night's sleep. Like you said, there's always going to be things because we're humans. Um, So hopefully some of the questions I haven't got through tonight, considering those 12 tips or depending where you look of how to get asleep, there's so many little um, ways there which you can change things, which I'm sure, like I say, won't be, you won't have thought of, you don't just stumble upon these ideas. I've got a clock, again, because I suffer, I've got a really cool clock which um i don't think it costs much because it's for my birthday and i'll spend as much money anymore but it just increases light in the morning gradually because i need a blackout at night time but then the idea is it's nice to wake up with the natural light so unless you've got automatic curtains on a kind of some kind of expensive google plug-in thing then yeah this light will just come on gradually i set it at a certain time to emit light and you know what it's pretty cool i mean i love waking up without my alarm clock which is another topic we'll talk about because what worse way to start a day than with a straight away from sleep to it's just crazy isn't it from a very young age i've never had an alarm i found out when i was about nine i would put on some nursery rhyme because i prefer to wake up as soon as i could actually have music wake up to that wake up to some chopin rather than some kind of why so again there's lots of things which unless you've suffered from poor sleep and you've stumbled upon because of that they'll surprise you um as to how you can improve your sleep quality so Gang, thank you so much. It's It's gone way too, like I said, um, I'd keep here forever, but I can't. But I appreciate you've got stuff to do because you're not even in the UK. What time is it where you are? Like three, four or something? Or where are you? Yeah, it's the afternoon. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, it's easier for us than, than you, yeah. I think, right? No, no, no. no I'm a night owl. I'm not, if I could stay here until two in the morning, I'm in my element. I'm staring at some nice blue LED. It's fantastic. It's great. I'm not. I've got an app on here. I've got a download in an app. Just take out the blue light. Um, but um, yeah, but thank you so much. I think we've achieved our mission of introducing some ideas. I'm hoping um, if you listen to the podcast, then hopefully it has generated some more questions. And that's why we're doing Sleep Awareness Month on the Sports Derby Association uh, podcast, videocast, and Munch Out Live, because the conversation will continue with a lovely segue, because Olivia, who we never even introduced, we just kind of dragged up here from the lobby, is the CEO of uh, Aris Archoscope, and also PhD in Applied Mathematics, which is pretty impressive. I mean, clinical psychology, no disrespect, but Applied Mathematics, I mean, that's just like, you've got to be a total, <laughs> absolute masochist. But yeah, anyway, so when it comes to trackers and stuff, that's going to be all next week. Um, and Olivia's already showed some fantastic use of metaphors and idioms to get points across. It's going to be very exciting. Wonderful domination of the English language. So that will be next week. Um, but as far as today goes, 
Um, I think that hopefully wraps it up. Um, if you've got any emails or further questions, especially for Olivia knowing it's going to be tracking next week, trackers, then uh, matt at the sta.co.uk or social media. Keep Now you've met these guys and you can see how lovely they are, then follow. For example, Jesse on social media, Sleep and Sports. Yeah? Yep. That's perfect. That's my Twitter, Twitter thing. Yeah. Yep. yep. And I'm not really there. active elsewhere. No, no, no. And you've got loads of exciting things coming up as well. And thanks to meeting you, um, some lovely ventures coming up. Um, just give a little shout out because I'm very excited by the, what's the latest one coming up? The new podcast? Wait, well, I think you've got about 12 podcasts only coming up. <laughs> <laughs> what's the one, the sleep, uh, what was it, the wave? No, what was it called? Yes, yes, yes. So uh, shameless plug here. Uh, I'm launching my own content channel with a collaborator. Uh, he hosts the Sleep Junkies podcast, which I highly mm. recommend. Um, and we are starting our own content channel called The Slow Wave. Slow uh, Wave. If you search, if you search uh, Welcome to the Slow Wave on YouTube, you'll probably find our welcome video we just put out yesterday. And um, we're going to produce content each week. But otherwise, yeah, feel free to reach out to me at uh, Sleep and Sports on Twitter. Um, I think you'll find I, I generally respond and I'm happy to address any questions, but you're in great hands with Olivia. Um, ask her about the Apple watch and how she can hack it. Hey, um, and a really nice video as well. I'll make sure that goes to the show notes as well. Cause that video you guys made, did Olivia just Uh-oh. go? What did you say? But yeah, that video you guys made was beautiful. If that's a, if that's a sign of what's coming, then fantastic. Really, really nice production. Really, really cool. Um, I'll make sure that goes in the show notes. Um, and then Olivia, who just disappeared from our screen, maybe clicked the wrong button. She will be here next week. Not as active on social media because math is her thing. So obviously the two just don't tally. Brain can't handle both of those at the same time. But um, we'll give you... Um, links for olivia's work next week as well right conscious of the yeah time, if you want to so. just uh a qu- sorry a quick what? primer to olivia uh conveniently she's very easy to track down on the interweb if you uh go to uh, oliviawalch.com uh w-a-l-c-h uh she has a really polished website and also shows her creative side as well um it's really impressive oh we thought it was something you said olivia what was that about you yeah it's appeared did you she I did that to build suspense. Sorry about yeah, that. So yeah, we just said if people want to um read about your contact you, Jesse was kind enough to mention uh yeah, your website where there's a load of information. Just repeat it again for me, the website. Is it Olivia Walsh? OliviaWalsh.com. Dot com. It's nothing, it's not even that complicated. Easy enough. Yeah, she makes it too easy. <laughs> okay wicked uh thank you everyone who's joined us live if you listen to the podcast which i will try as hard as much as can to put out tomorrow um and you think oh, i want to join these people live next week they sound great then it will be tuesday at eight o'clock that's uk time which is gmt plus one um so yeah if you want it then you can join us everyone's welcome um and we'll continue and pick up the conversation with olivia with regards to sleep trackers next tuesday you guys stick around so i can thank you personally but all of you who have joined us live, I'm now going to end the uh, end the show. So thanks again for joining us and take care for each other. We'll see you next time. You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast. Let's talk about it.